Hey ladies, welcome to the Looking Above podcast. It's easy to get bogged down in details of everyday life. If we aren't intentional, our eyes can easily be pulled away from the Lord and we can set our gaze on things of earth. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. My name is Karen Boffman and I'm the women's pastor at New Life Church in Gillette, Wyoming. I believe that our perspective changes everything. So together, we'll be looking above. Hello there, ladies. Welcome back to Looking Above. I hope that you are well. I hope that you are enjoying our time walking through the book of John and just seeing Jesus in action and in Jesus seeing God. I hope that it is causing you to trust him more and more and just growing your faith as you continue to dive into this. And today we're going to be looking into John chapters 11 and 12. We're going to be seeing Jesus interact with some people that he loves very much. This first story is the raising of Lazarus. Lazarus was brother to Mary and Martha, and this family was a family that Jesus was close with. We don't know exactly why or how they began this relationship, but they were clearly disciples of his. They were followers. They knew his teachings. They knew him well. And as we see in this story, Jesus loved them very, very much. The story begins with Lazarus being sick and his sisters sending a message to Jesus saying that, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. That dear friend phrase just shows the depth of the connection that this family had to Jesus. But when Jesus heard about it, he says, Lazarus's sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. Jesus knew that this action, uh, the raising of Lazarus that he was going to be doing very shortly, was going to precipitate the plot to kill him. And he considered his death to be where he would be glorified. So this next section was his path to glory in his mind. Verse 5 says, So although he loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days although he loved them. It was not a lack of love that caused him to wait two days. So often when we are praying for something and we want an answer, we want a response from the Lord immediately, what do we think when he doesn't immediately give us what we want or immediately even respond to us, but we start to question, does he even care? Is he even listening? But here we see this example of Jesus and this family that he loves greatly, and he delays going on purpose because he knows that in doing so, he will better glorify God. So Jesus knows that Lazarus is going to die, and it's, he also knows that it's going to be a temporary death. And that the result is going to be more impressive because not only will he heal him, but he will resurrect him. So we just need to trust Jesus when things aren't going on our timing, 
that maybe there's a greater plan at stake here. Maybe the end result is going to bring God even more glory because we didn't get what we wanted on our timetable. So he waits a couple more days, and then I'm jumping down to verse 11. He says to his disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, and he is using sleep as a metaphor for death here. And he says, but I will go now and wake him. The disciples, of course, are a little hard-headed, and they don't get this. And they say, Lord, if he's sleeping, he'll soon get better. You know, if you rest, then you get healthy again. They didn't get it. So Jesus has to tell them plainly, as he does often, verse 14, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now, you will really believe. So he's implying that Lazarus wouldn't have died if he had been there. He would have healed him and he would have been fine. But now they're going to see a manifestation of his glory so remarkable that faith is going to be the only response. If any of them had any doubt in who he is, they're about to see once and for all that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. So Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go to and die with Jesus. Now, this might seem a little out of place. You're thinking, what in the world? He's going to his friend's house. Why is he saying, let's go die with Jesus? Well, I skipped a couple verses. Back in verse 8, his disciples were warning him and saying, those people in Judea were trying to stone you. Why would you go there again? That uh, festival of dedication, he had said, I and the Father are one, and the people there had tried to stone him for blasphemy. And so going back into this area of Judea is dangerous, and Thomas knows this. If Jesus went back, they believed he surely could be killed. And the disciples feared for their lives as well. But here we see Thomas acting with incredible courage. He is aware that the worst may happen, but he's choosing to do the right thing anyway. As you think about Thomas, I just encourage you to take a moment and pause maybe and think about your own reaction to fear. When you know something is going to be hard and you don't know what the outcome is going to be, do you run away or do you press on, especially when you know that it's where God is calling you? Here we see Thomas persevering in spite of fear. So Jesus arrives in Bethany. He's told that Lazarus has now been in the grave for four whole days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road, and many people had come from Jerusalem to console Martha and Mary and their loss. So in this time, the house would have been full of sympathizers. This was their Jewish duty, was to go and console or grieve with a family that was grieving. But when Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. That's Martha's nature. She is love in action. She is a we see this in other places in Scripture. We're going to see it again here in chapter 12. But Martha ran to Jesus. It says in verse 20, but Mary stayed in the house. Mary's nature is to be still and to sit. Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, 
I know that God will give you whatever you ask. When she speaks to Jesus, her heart is speaking of her faith. She fully believes in his power that if he had been there, he would have healed her brother. But she also has this incredible belief that if Jesus asks God to restore life, it will happen. What I see in Martha is a looking above faith. She sees beyond the circumstance. She sees beyond the fact that her brother is dead and in the grave four days. She sees what God can do. She's not looking around her at the situation. She's looking above and trusting in her God and in the Messiah that she has come to believe in. And Jesus rewards her faith. He says, your brother will rise again. And she shows her faith. She says, yes, he will rise again at the resurrection, at the last day. And then Jesus goes on and tells her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. And now this dying is referring to a dying to ourself and our sin. That's when we're born again into a life that will never end. Verse 26 Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. If we believe, if we accept Jesus and everything that he said as true, and we're willing to stake our lives on that in trust, we will have everlasting life. Not just a new, renewed life here, but a life that will go on for eternity. And he asks her if she believes, and she says, yes, I have always believed that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. She had a tremendous faith in Jesus. So many people were questioning who he was. Even his disciples hemmed and hawed and weren't always sure. But here this woman just has this tremendous faith. If you're someone who God has given that tremendous faith, trust him. Speak like she does. Speak from your heart of faith and trust and continue to rely on him. And don't let others throw you into doubt. You can be such an encouragement to others. When I see the way that Martha speaks and believes, it encourages me to have a similar faith. So if you are someone who is like Martha and has that childlike faith, that faith that doesn't question Be an inspiration to others. Show them your faith. And she's so excited to see Jesus. And so she runs back home to try and pull her sister aside and let her sister also have a moment with Jesus. He stays outside the village, and Mary goes. And as she goes to see and find Jesus, everyone else sees her leave, and they all think, oh, my goodness, she's going to the grave to weep, and we need to follow her and go with her. So all these people follow him, follow her, excuse me, to him. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him and he was deeply troubled. Jesus reacted to the people's reaction towards sickness and death. His reaction was that he had such distress of his spirit that his body trembled. He was deeply troubled. He was angry that people were having to go through this 
death and this heartache. Where have you put him? He asked. And they told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. This little bit here, verses 33 through 35, just remind us that while Jesus was God, he was also fully human. And we see him here overcome with emotion and sympathy for the loss of this friend and the brother of these women that he loves and cares about so much. About a week ago, I was talking to a friend who is caring for some aging parents, and they may be nearing the end of their lives. And it was a very emotional few days that she had just walked through, and we talked, and she said, I'm just so ashamed that I can't keep my emotions under control. I said, why would you keep your emotions under control? And she says, I feel like I should be more stoic. And I said, why do you have that feeling? And I think so often our society tells us that we need to have it all together, right? We need to keep our emotions in check. But I love this display of Jesus' humanness and of emotion. It reminds us that it's okay. We were made with feelings. We were made with emotions. And it's not wrong for us to feel things deeply. Some of us feel things more deeply than others. But if you are troubled, if you are sad, if you are happy, those are all emotions that God put within us and that Jesus himself felt when he was on this earth. And so then Jesus tells them to roll the stone aside. And Martha, who is just as practical as ever, says, oh, Lord, it's going to stink. <laughs> like he's been dead for four days. And Jesus reminds her, didn't I tell you you would see God's glory if you believe? And then verse 43, he shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. I just remember back all the way to chapter one when we saw that Jesus is the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And here again, we see the Word in action. All Jesus has to do is speak, and this dead man comes back to life. Now, many people, many of the people who were there believed Jesus when this happened, it says in verse 45, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told him what Jesus had done. And the leading priests and Pharisees called the high council together. What are we going to do, they asked. This man certainly performs many miraculous signs. If we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone will believe him. Then the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. Now, this group of people, the Sanhedrin, was made up of 71 members. They had a high priest who presided over them. Then there were the chief priests and the Sadducees who made up the majority. And then some Pharisees were the minority here. The Pharisees' sole interest was just living according to the law, and they meant business. And then the Sadducees were actually a political party. They were wealthy aristoc aristocrats. Um, and all priests were Sadducees. They judged not by right and wrong, but by standards of their comfort and career. The Sadducees' aim was to retain their political power. And at this point, Jesus has become a threat. They feared that Jesus' presence in Jerusalem would attract a large following that would then bring the Roman authorities into the picture. They would take over, and that would um, destroy their internal autonomy, and possibly even they would take away the temple. 
So Caiaphas, who's the high priest at that time, I'm in verse 49 now, says, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't realize that it is better for one man that one it is better for you that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. So he's saying the safety of the whole nation could be secured by one man's death. And he reasoned, well, then that man should die. Verse 53, so from that time on, the Jewish leaders began to plot Jesus's death. As a result, Jesus stopped his public ministry among the people and left Jerusalem. It was not yet his time. It was not the time for him to go to the cross. So he withdrew from the limelight until it was God's time for him. Now we see it's just about time for the Passover. And so people are coming from all over the country and they're looking for Jesus. People had heard what was going on and they were drawn to the controversy surrounding Jesus. It's kind of like how bad news, bad publicity draws people now, right? If there's a controversy, everybody wants to get in on it. Everybody wants to know what's happening. Um, We Google it and then we post about it and we get in on the action. And that's exactly what was happening here. People knew that Jesus was causing a ruckus among the Jewish leaders and they wanted to know what was going to go down. We're going into John chapter 12 now. Uh, Six days before the Passover celebration, Jesus arrived at Bethany at the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. So he comes back now to Lazarus and Mary and Martha's home. A dinner was prepared in his honor. Martha served. So here's Martha showing her love practically through service again. And Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary took out a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. Mary showed her love extravagantly. She showed her love with humility. She stooped to Jesus' feet. And she showed her love unselfconsciously. She had her hair down, which was actually a sign of an immoral woman, and she did not care what people thought. It was an extravagant outpouring of this expensive perfume, and she's wiping his feet with her hair. And this was an extraordinary action because women kept their hair up. And then we see Judas, good old Judas, watching this act of loveliness, and all he sees is the waste. Others might have been thinking the same thing, but Judas is bold enough to say that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Verse 6, not that he cared for a poor, for he was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Even though Jesus knew who Judas was, He treated him with trust, and he gave him this job of honor. He was in charge of the disciples' money. I think we can learn from how Jesus trusted Judas here. He knew his heart. He knew that he wasn't perfect, but he treated him as if he expected the best from him. And we can do the same. We may realize that people aren't all the way there yet, right? They haven't made it on their spiritual journey. Clearly, none of us have. But 
sometimes we need to treat people as if we expect the best of them, as we can see what God has in store for them and what their potential could be. But also we can learn from Judas here because oftentimes the area where we are gifted is also the area where we are tempted. He was put in charge of the money because he was good with money, because he was financially gifted, but his gift became his temptation. Jesus replies, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. If God moves your heart like he did Mary's, act on it. He moved her heart and she just did this lavish act of love by pouring this perfume on Jesus. It was a lavish expense. And this was commonplace at a funeral. At a funeral, they expended great amounts of money to show honor to the person who died. But here we saw Mary showing that honor to Jesus before his death. When all the people heard of Jesus' arrival, they flocked to see him and also to see Lazarus, the man that he had raised from the dead. Verse 10, then the leading priests decided to kill Lazarus too. Now, if Lazarus was alive, he was a reminder to the people of Jesus' power. So they felt like he needed to die with Jesus so that people would calm down. The Sadducees did not believe in resurrection. So Lazarus coming back to life was undermining their teaching and also their power. And they needed to destroy this evidence. As usual, the Sadducees were working for their own self-interest. Their whole purpose was to keep themselves in power. For many people, self-interest is a powerful motivator. However, we see this is such a stark contrast to Jesus and his motivation, which is obedience to God and love of others. What motivates you? Self-interest or obedience? This next part here is the triumphant entry. This is what we celebrate on Palm Sunday every year when Jesus comes into the Passover in the celebration in Jerusalem. And he comes in, verse 14 says, riding on the back of a young donkey. This was an was him claiming that he was the Messiah because it was an enactment of Zechariah 9, verse 9. On Jesus' part, it was also an act of love and courage because he knew that to come openly to the Passover, they were seeking to kill him. And so he was being courageous and loving. It was his time to come and to be seen. I'm jumping down to verse 23. Jesus replied, Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter his glory. And he means his crucifixion. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. When I hear this talking about wheat, it reminds me of how he called himself the bread of life. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. So only through death comes life. 
Verse 25, those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. So only by spending our lives do we save our lives. If we love our lives, if we are moved by selfishness and a desire for security and we want safety and advancement, it says we will lose our lives, but instead we should spend ourselves on behalf of God and others because as we give of ourselves, we gain life in eternity. Verse 26, anyone who wants to be my my disciple must follow me because my servants must be where I am. For a servant to follow the master meant sharing in the master's suffering, but also in his glory. And the Father will honor anyone who serves me. So only by service comes greatness. And then we see this humanity of Jesus again. And he says, now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason I came. Even Jesus is struggling. It was humanly hard for him to do the right thing. But then verse 28, Father, bring glory to your name. His response is always that God be glorified. By his obedience, God was (laughs) glorified. I'm going to hop all the way down to verse 37 now. But despite all the miraculous signs Jesus had done, most of the people still did not believe him. The really cool thing is that God can use men's unbelief for his purposes. God used the unbelief of the Jews for the conversion of the Gentiles. So just because things don't look humanly like they're going well doesn't mean that God can't use what's going on. Verse 42 says, many people did believe in him, however, including some of the Jewish leaders, but they wouldn't admit it for fear that the Pharisees would expel them from the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than the praise of God. Those Jewish leaders were fans. If you haven't read the book, Not a Fan by Kyle Eidelman, I highly encourage it. I love it. Um, But it's this idea of being fans or followers. Just a moment ago, We were reading, right? Anyone who wants to be my disciple must follow me. And I said, for a servant to follow the master meant sharing and suffering. So the servants, we, if we want to be followers or disciples of Jesus, we have to follow him. And that might mean going through hard things. And that means being willing to admit our faith in Jesus, not being so worried about that human praise, but being more concerned with the praise of God. We have to live it. We can't just claim it. But here these Jewish leaders, they did believe that Jesus was who he said he was and who he was proving himself to be, but they weren't willing to say it out loud. You and James chapter 2, I think it's verse 19 and 20, it says that even the devil and his demons believe in Jesus. But do they follow? No, they don't. 
I just want to remind us that in Jesus, man meets God, right? So to listen to Jesus is to listen to God. To see Jesus is to see God. Jesus came to save us, but our response shows our judgment. In this last little section here, Jesus is kind of talking about this. And in verse 48, it says, but all who reject me and my message will be judged on the day of judgment by the truth I have spoken. People will be judged by the words that they have heard. You can't be blamed for not knowing and not doing a truth that you've never heard, but you will be held accountable for what you know and don't act upon. And so as we read this and as we get this deeper understanding of who Jesus is, we have to be moved to action. We have to be moved to deeper faith. We have to be putting this faith into action so that people see it in us, so they see it in our lives. We follow Jesus and we live like Jesus did. We live sacrificially. That's what looking above is. We don't look at our peers and worry about the praise, human praise, like these Jewish leaders did. We look at God and we think, gracious, Jesus did this for me. This is how he lived. And I'm going to live like him. I'm going to love like him. And God, give me a mission and I'm going to follow it. Tell me what to do and I'm going to obey it. We will be held accountable for what we know. And we know a lot. We have the word of God in our hands and it's our responsibility to read it and to respond to it. I encourage you this week, keep looking above, keep digging into the word, keep spending time with Jesus, knowing him more and letting the truth of who he is transform you into a disciple, into a follower. Let me pray for you. God, I thank you so much for these sisters who are listening to these podcasts and being challenged and thinking more deeply about you and about your son. And we just pray, Lord God, you would give us power, that you would give us courage, that you would give us wisdom and strength. Lord, help us to obey you more. Help us to live like Jesus solely for your glory. Help us in every moment to just realign our lives to your will, to listen and to obey and to follow and help us not to get so bogged down in what's going on around us, but help us to continue looking above.